You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do, you even, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you may be seated. Good morning, Redemption Hill Church. Um, we have our restless kids room across the hallway. No Redemption Hill kids today, but as I say every Sunday, kids, you're never a burden. You're a blessing. So thank you that you're here. A couple other house cleaning items. I've been resisting wearing glasses when I preach for like months, but these are not for effect. (laughs) I am getting old and I'm feeling it. Older, I guess. So that's the new look. And as far as the stash goes, that has nothing to do with me. That's completely my wife's decision. So whether you like it or hate it, I don't know. I'm on a Zoom call with guys in the denomination earlier this week, and some of them are like, dude, you got to get rid of it. Other guys, another guy was like, dude, it totally fits you. So I don't know. I don't even care. But um, if you don't like it, take it up with my wife. So there we go. All right, we are chugging along in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. The most excellent sermon ever preached is also, I imagine you're finding, the most challenging sermon ever preached I assume um, you all are receiving the various challenges from our Lord, from our Lord Jesus. And as you can tell from the public reading of God's Word today, uh, from John, today's focus is on love. We all have a concept of love. I love my wife, um, and how I love her is expressed in multiple ways, right? It's multifaceted. Even when there's friction between Sharice and myself, I know that our love for one another will sustain us. I love my girls, right? I have two beautiful daughters. They're wonderful. I would crawl in a ditch if one of them needed to get from one side of the ditch to the other, right? I'll do whatever it takes for them. I love them. I love this church. I love Redemption Hill. As I've said many times, there's no other church, there's no other group of people that I would want to be around. You know, I love the United States, right? Uh, I love the liberties and freedoms afforded to me by this country. So there are various objects of love in my life and in your life, and there are many reasons to love. But not much challenges the heart more than being told to love something or someone that you instinctively hate. 
right? We might hate, and I use that word loosely for the moment, um, things of this world, right? When there's a conflict with a friend or a family member, resolution can be pursued, but what about that politician you hate? I mean, I know I can make a list. I got opinions. You've been around me for more than five minutes. You know I got opinions. What about that television personality that rails against your views, your principles, and your faith? What is your heart like toward that person? How about this thought, which will challenge your heart? How do you love someone with an ideology or a worldview that is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ and your faith? Like today, and I'm admitting this up front, I'm hitting some hot-button issues that we see within our culture because really, at the end of the day, Jesus wants to challenge your heart toward several issues, I think, regarding what it means to love your enemies. So I think Jesus has something to say to you and to me this morning. So I'm going to briefly pray, ask for God's help, and we'll get into God's Word. Heavenly Father, I desperately need your help this morning. This is a weighty passage, challenging passage. And uh, I trust that the Holy Spirit is indeed in and at work through the preaching of your Word. And I pray for hearts to receive what you have said. Any air that would be in my mouth or come out of my mouth, Lord, I pray that that would be dismissed immediately. And that these saints in front of me would be driven back to what you've already spoken. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not sure there's a more difficult command in Scripture than to be told to go and love your enemy. I'm just kind of like thinking off the top of my head, you know. What are other challenging texts? This is a tough one, right? Allow me to test this command against your heart. On September 11th, 2001, planes were flown into the Trade Towers and another one into the Pentagon, right? All these planes were hijacked by Muslim jihadists. Now, if, you're, if you are in your mid-30s or older, you know where you were and who you were with when those events took place. When you heard for the first time and you turned down the TV and you're like, whoa. I mean, I know exactly where I was at. Downtown Minneapolis. No, I remember who I was with. I remember their name. <laughs> I remember their face. I think many people rightly thought that the United States was under attack. I would imagine that's how folks felt during the bombing of Pearl Harbor as well, if you lived during that generation. You remember where you were and who you were with. Who, who you were with. For those who are older, do you remember the sentiment that swept through the American conscience? Right? After 9-11, a major anti-Muslim sentiment spread across this country like wildfire. I remember because I gave into it. The enemy of America had a face, and it was a Muslim face. Middle Eastern Muslim face, face in particular. Of course, these perceptions were born out of an irrational fear. There, there were Muslims who, were, who have been born in America, have raised a family in America, and are contributing to society, and they were viewed as an enemy. In retrospect, 
and with the passage in front of us this morning, how do you think our Lord would have instructed our hearts after 9-11? Was it okay to be overcome with fear, which made us perceive a collective people as an enemy? I'll let the question linger. Here's a personal example that tested my heart this week, actually on Wednesday. On Wednesday morning, I woke up and headed out to find a spot to write this sermon. <laughs> like, literally. And I'm pulling out of the gravel road, taking a right, and right behind me is this guy who clearly does not like me going the speed limit. And he's, like, tailing me. And perhaps I'm getting old, but I, don't, I dislike being tailed. Now, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't give uh, visible signs of road rage, but I noticed what began to happen in my heart. I even text Sharice, I'm like, pray for me. Not while I was driving, after, after I settled. I was extremely bothered by the impatience of the driver behind me. For a few moments, I realized that this guy, who I had never met, and maybe I actually would like him, I hated him. I allowed this guy's actions to control my emotions. Every day you wake up, you are challenged to love. Every day you wake up, God is calling you to fulfill the two greatest commandments, love God and love others. Every day you wake up, you are called to put away hate. Christ challenges you to exhibit the highest virtue of the Christian faith. God desires for you to set aside hate and to pursue love. But here is the problem the people of God have struggled with over the centuries, especially, I would say, in the 20th and 21st century. The people of God have struggled to rightly define love. Biblical love has not been rightly defined, and as a result, Love has not been effectively applied. How will you love your enemy if you do not know what love is? As a dear friend of mine always stresses to me, definitions are essential. So let's ask a fundamental question that the music artist Hathaway asked in 1993. What is love? Right? We can turn the question into a statement in the same way that Foreigner did in 1984. I want to know what love is. And there are a thousand other songs that we could quote this morning. When someone mentions the word love, our minds tend to jump to romance. All the songs are about romantic love, right? But what we see in the Bible is that when love is mentioned, it has very little to do with romance. Agape love, which is the Greek word used in our text this morning, is more of a choice than a feeling. Agape love does not preclude feelings, but it is certainly not, and I repeat, not the dominant feature at all. Which is good, actually, because emotionally speaking, my love can be all over the place. Marriage is actually an excellent example of the importance of love being a covenantal choice more than a romantic feeling. When a couple is first married, 
the romance tends to be high. The feeling's like, oh, you're the best thing since sliced bread. The googly eyes. I've done enough premarital counseling to see the googly eyes, and I'm like, okay, I'll call you in five years, right? Over time, and every married couple knows this, romance does wane. It goes up and down. It is sometimes hard to sustain. And when a couple is older, what is valued more than romance? Commitment. Companionship. So it is critical not to define biblical love in emotional and romantic terms. I'm not dismissing them, right? Emotions are good. God, God gave us emotions. But just trying to rightly understand what is biblical love, especially as it pertains to our passage and loving our enemies. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about this passage and this kind of love. It's, he says this kind of love is utterly and disinterested love. I'm not sure um, disinterested is the word I would use, but I understand what Jones is attempting to describe. I uh, prefer the term dispassionate. Like I said, love is not about how you feel. It's an attitude of your heart. Like, what's going on right here? Love is a choice and often a commitment to the choices you make. Just like we saw last week, Jesus is pushing you to evaluate the condition of your heart because the condition of your heart results in and manifests in choices that you make. Allow me, take, allow me to take you to the end of this sermon. Jesus is asking you to make a choice to love your enemy. Think about that. That's, that's what's on the table in this text. He's calling you to make a choice to love your enemy. And it's a good thing it's not emotional love because who emotionally is going to love their enemy? Right? Now, the biblical meaning of love is connected with who you are called to love. Love has an object. Jesus corrects a false teaching in this sermon for the sixth time. We've seen the previous five. Here's the sixth. He said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I read a commentary on this passage, and the author said that Jesus is like a spiritual fitness trainer. Every time Jesus says, you have heard it said, he adds more weight to the workout. And with this teaching, it seems Jesus wants you to be like spiritually swole, like be as big as you, get as big as you can, more weight. So here's what's going on behind this sixth correction. The Pharisees were teaching the Jews to love their fellow Jews, and anyone who is not a Jew is not worthy of love. They are to be hated. The enemy of the Jews was anyone who was not a Jew. So I, I hope you see the elitism of this particular teaching. I hope you see the prejudice of the teaching by the Pharisees. Here's the irony of uh, the teaching by the Pharisees. This teaching on love by the Pharisees had the opposite effect. It was an unloving teaching on love. <laughs> the correction from D Jesus is no different than what many Americans needed to hear, in my opinion, after 9-11. Sure, love your fellow American, but are you to hate all Muslims? 
in the previous five sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, you might have noticed that Jesus had to correct the Pharisees and how they interpreted the Old Testament. Jesus kept going back to the Bible and said, okay, this is what it said, now this is the right interpretation. That's been the pattern. If you picked up on that pattern, you might wonder what Old Testament law did the Pharisees bungle now? Positively, the Pharisees were teaching Leviticus 19.18. Here's that passage. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, so people in your family, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Great. Good. Got it. Half of that's right. God is calling his people to love their own people. Without a doubt, this teaching should, preemate, uh, should dominate in this local church, right? We want to love each other well. We are a church family. We are a spiritual family. And we want those who come from the outside to say, hey, these folks really like each other. They, they joyfully love each other. And it's demonstrated in what they do for each other. That's good. The gospel writer Matthew picks up on this in, in chapter 19. But the Pharisees were teaching a half-truth. That's the problem here, which is ultimately a lie. Here's what is sadly interesting. Nowhere in the Old Testament law does God say, hate your enemies. You cannot find this commandment, this alleged commandment, with a searchlight. It's not there. It does not exist. First century Pharisees created a law out of whole cloth. If anything, God calls upon his people in the Old Testament to do the opposite. God calls upon his people to care for the stranger and the sojourner in their land. Read, read the following passage and then ask yourself, did the Pharisees accurately interpret the Bible? This is later on in Leviticus 19. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That doesn't sound like Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48, does it? It seems to me that Leviticus 19 is teaching that when someone outside of your tribe, your family, and even religion crosses your path, you're actually just you're supposed to roll out the red carpet. You know what you do? You treat them as if they're a part of your family. Why? And this is the point the Lord makes to Israel, and he makes to us. Because you were a stranger. You knew what it was like to sojourn. Remember, Israel? Wandering? Because you know what it was like to be a stranger, God wants you to be kind to strangers. So go and emulate God's kindness when strangers cross your path. Now, it is true that Israel had enemies. And there were times when the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Moabites were to be annihilated because they were so wicked and against the God of the Bible, right? You can't get past like Sodom and Gomorrah. So do not be fooled. The love of God and the absolute justice of God are not opposed to each other. God can still make similar proclamations in our day. Indeed, we know that at the second coming of Christ, nations will be judged. Isaiah 34, Isaiah 66, Matthew 25. Like read this from Psalm 139. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? 
And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, this commentator, Doriani, rightly states, the Bible never commands us to hate individual enemies. But there is a place for righteous wrath toward God's settled enemies. There is a difference between a judicial proclamation from God and the attitude of your heart toward an enemy. The judgment of the nations is the prerogative of the sovereign God of the universe. But your prerogative is to rightly love your enemies so that by your good works, your enemies may see God, Matthew 5, 16, and be one to Christ. So here's the false teaching in a nutshell. The Jews did not have a proper understanding of their neighbor. They did not understand the definition or magnitude of love. And they reduced anyone who was not a part of their race as an enemy. As a result, Jesus is throwing the red card on the Pharisees. The Pharisees need to be removed from the pitch so that Jesus can correct the false teaching. And here is the correction. Our Lord says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Remember, Pharisees are saying, hate your enemies. And Jesus says, love your enemies. And not only that, not only that, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Let's first deal with the two exhortations of verse 44. Exhortation number one is to love your enemies. Exhortation number two is to pray for those who persecute you. I think it's safe to assume that an enemy and the one who is persecuting you could easily be the same person. So who is your enemy? Well, an enemy is a person who aims to harm with malice. Right? An enemy seeks to harm with intent. I'm going to go out of my way to hurt and harm that individual, right? So go, going back to my opening example about 9-11, Jesus is calling you to love the peaceful Muslim. By preaching and demonstrating the love of Christ, we desire to see Muslims one to Christ. But what about the jihadists? You know, the people who are currently told that Christians are a blight on the earth and need to be removed. What about them? Here's where the radical teaching of Christ presses against our hearts, right? Jesus Christ wants you to view the jihadists as your neighbor. <laughs> I mean, that sounds weird to say. In other words... You are to love people that are different than you. You are to love the one who persecutes you. You can have a righteous anger against the actions of the jihadists, right? You can demand justice for murder, absolutely 100%. You can think that the subsequent war in Afghanistan was justified, fine. All of that does not contradict the command to love your enemy. Jesus is extending the meaning of neighbor and pushing us out beyond what is directly in front of us. Now, one tension point in our cultural climate is the relationship between love and truth, right? There are Christians who focus so much on loving others, they would not know the truth of God if it like slapped them in the face. 
Love is the only guiding principle, and the justice and wrath of God are, are mere footnotes to their theology and their faith, right? Conversely, there are defenders of biblical truth who act like there's a rock in their shoe. Every standalone statement about the love of God is determined to be from someone theologically liberal, right? But when these two views exist, a false dichotomy is created. An unnecessary division is created. Because the fact is this. Truth, the truth of God, and the love of God work together. Truth and love need each other. Truth from God and the love of Christ cannot exist without each other. I mean, here, again, I said earlier, I'm going to bring up some hot-button issues. I already brought up one. Here's another one. And this has already come out in our sermon series because of what we saw with adultery. God hates it when his design for sexuality is corrupted, right? He hates that. God grieves over the number of people who fall prey to the LGBTQ plus movement. God hates the corruption. God also hates the growing number of heterosexuals who are succumbed to porn. Another example of God's design of man and woman sexuality being corrupted. Now, Christians are free to, to love those who are caught up in heinous sin while simultaneously saying, everything I just mentioned is sin. As a matter of fact, if we do not call out the sin, then you can expect more people to fall prey to the sin. We can also say God is not unloving to judge people for sin. Just go to Romans 1, read uh, verses 18 to 32, and you see it right there. Even our passage today shows us that truth and love exist together. For example... I think we can safely assume that a person who will persecute you for your faith is sinning against you, right? Sin is committed when someone beats another person because they are a follower of Jesus Christ. We do not need to back down from the theological truth that sin exists. But Jesus urges us to respond to a sinner. How? How? With love and prayer. Love and prayer end up being a display of God's love toward an enemy. This is hard. I, I get it. Now, will God judge the wicked? Yep. Is God calling you to show the love of Christ so that the wicked may be one to Christ through you? 100%. When you demonstrate love and prayer to your enemies, you show that you are God's child because the love of the Father, because of the love of the Father toward you, right? God wants his children to aspire to, let's just call it a divine love. A love that is so much different than the love we experience horizontally in this world. Jesus emphatically makes the point that we are to love our enemies with two examples. Here's the rest of verse 45 along with verses 46 and 47. And Jesus says, For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles do the same. What I want you to see from these verses that Jesus is making a point by asking two questions. Jesus says, how are you different from the tax collectors? 
if the only people you love are like a part of your tribe, a part of your family? The question's rhetorical, right? Those listening to Christ knew the answer. There is no difference. Jesus invokes the tax collectors because everybody hated the tax collectors. Like, how many of you like the IRS? Can I get a hand? No, no, didn't think so. Now imagine if they came to your house telling you that you got to pay up to Caesar. I mean, I know disease is more popular than first century tax collectors. But Jesus invokes the tax collector to make a strong point. You are no different from the tax collector if you do not love those outside of your immediate circles. Oh, you love your wife and kids? Great, and I understand with family. At times you're looking at your wife and like, you're the enemy. (laughs) You know, the kids, same way. I get that. It happens very locally. But it's good to love your kids and and your spouse. But how does that make you different from the large swath of the world? The second question is about how you treat people who are different than you. The tax collector was likely Jewish, which means the exhortation of Christ is to love someone you dislike from your same tribe or race or language. The next question is about those who fall outside of your tribe. The Gentiles, non-Jews, treated each other with respect. So how is it any different that when you treat those within your family circles or your church with respect, how is that any different? Perhaps the best example of what Jesus is saying is from the parable of the Good Samaritan. I had mentioned this particular parable back in April. Um, we looked at the beatitude, blessed are the merciful, and I highlighted the compassion of the Samaritan. But now I want you to notice how love, dignity, and respect were extended across ethnic and racial lines. I mean, you can read, read this in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, but here's the synopsis. Jesus says a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, he was mugged by robbers, right? Guys walking on the road. He gets mugged, and he was left for dead. The road was well-traveled, and eventually a priest walked by. What did the priest do? Just kept walking. The religious guy. The one you'd expect to be the most merciful. Sails right on by. And then a Levite saw the poor man and walked to the other side of the road. And then a Samaritan approached the poor man and helped him. Samaritans were the ethnic outcasts of society. That's one of the points in which Christ is making. There were many stereotypes and prejudices against Samaritans. But no matter, the Samaritan helped the man. He healed his wounds and found the man lodging. Now, after telling this story, Jesus poses the question, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Like, what one is actually demonstrating like neighborliness, right? To make a word up. And the answer is obvious. The Samaritan. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said in response, you go and do likewise. So Jesus is telling us more than to demonstrate compassion to another person. We are to be like Christ to anyone with a pulse, even if that other person is your perceived enemy. I think it's important to note that Redemption Hill needs to continue to take on a posture, the posture of the Samaritan, right? We want, to, we want a humble posture with an attitude of love that is extended not only to one another, right? But anyone who walks through the door, everywhere you go, rich or poor, 
black or white, whether you're a native Iowan or you've got the captive sticker on your car. We are to demonstrate the love of Christ to that individual. Part of the justification for loving an enemy in particular and praying for those who persecute you is that they are recipients of God's common grace. Jesus says the sun rises and the rain falls for the wicked and the just, for the wicked and God's people. Take a farmer who relies on the sun and the rain. Farmer John is a Christian, and he needs the rain and sun just as much as his non-Christian neighbor, Farmer Steve. They both experience a common grace from God. Neither John nor Steve deserve God's common grace, but they receive it you know, every, every year, right? every day. On the one hand, Jesus shows that all humanity is kind of the same. Right? There's a common grace. All people are recipients of God's common grace. On the other hand, Jesus calls his followers to live distinctly while being recipients of God's common grace and common love. Once again, one of the main themes of the Sermon on the Mount is coming up. Jesus is calling you and me to live distinctly. You need to live distinctly by loving your enemies. You are not distinct because you experience good weather for your crops. You are distinct because the Holy Spirit causes you to love your enemies. Jesus is calling us to follow his example. We read in Romans 5, Ryan rightly led out with this passage, but I'm going to go back to it. For if, we, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So what is more problematic? Is it more problematic for your enemies to persecute and sin against you, right? Is that more problematic or is this more problematic? That you have actually sinned against a holy and just God. You have sinned against the one who has created you. Before you cast judgment on an enemy, take a look at yourself. Take take the log out of your own eye. What do we read in Romans 5? You were an enemy of God, but by the death of Christ, you have been reconciled to God. You have been forgiven. God has shown you mercy and grace and, yes, love. The dispassionate love of God has been extended to you. The love of God is now at work in and through you. Now you are to turn and love your enemies. Right? You were the enemy, but God extended grace, mercy, and love. Now you turn around, you're like, okay, that guy over there, man, he really bugs me. I'm going to love him today. I'm going to make that dispassionate choice. That's the call. When has hate ever won someone to Christ? Right? Never. Never. Not once. I don't know of one story where a Christian hated, hated on someone and that person was like, hey, I want to know more about Jesus. That seems nice. No, of course not. The apostate, uh, Rob Bell, had his book title right, but everything within the binding is trash. Uh, the book title is Love Wins. Because, yes, the love of Christ always wins. If Christ loves you, 
and you know he died for you, then how much more can you love your enemies with your new life, which has been purchased by Christ? Our Lord ends this teaching with these words. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, Alfred Plummer summarizes the entire passage and connects love with this last verse. He says this. It's a really good uh, quote, I believe. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. To love as God loves is moral perfection. Christians are called to live distinctly for God. The Sermon on the Mount and this passage on love is about what it looks like to live in God's kingdom here on earth. You are a part of God's kingdom, not because you have lived up to moral standards, but because you are a part of God's kingdom by the blood of Christ. Until our Lord returns, you will not be perfect. Indwelling sin does remain. But let me end with a little Greek. I find this really helpful, and I hope it's helpful for you. The phrase, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, is in the future indicative, which means nothing to you. And I get that. But what's being said here, maybe two people, you care, and that guy over there cares, right? Future indicative. What Jesus, he's actually making a command, and he's predicting for us in the present. So he's saying, you need to be this, and you're going to continue to be this. You are to pursue the love of Christ in the present and for your future. And by the grace of God, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will see the high and virtuous calling to love your neighbor as yourself, even if your neighbor is your enemy. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.